0: Good morning and welcome to this, the third day of the Federalist Society National Lawyers Convention. This is, I don't mind telling you since you are here, the single best day of the convention. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. If you were here yesterday, I announced that yesterday was the best day of the convention, but I was only kidding then. (laughs) And of course, yesterday when I said that, I had no idea how long the metal detector line would be to get to see the vice president. So This offers me an opportunity to issue an official Federalist Society apology for the uh, inconveniences you all uh, experienced yesterday. We were very excited to have the Vice President as our guest at the convention yesterday, uh, but we were just as troubled and distressed by the complications as you were, so we are sorry for that. Um, So all that having been said, today is the best day of the convention, so I'm glad you're here. We have two showcase panels today on limited government, one of them a roundtable. We have other panel debates on international law, federalism and regulation of business, agency preemption, and more. And of course, later this afternoon, we'll have our convention luncheon, and then we'll close the convention with a reception and a John Yu book signing. But first, our showcase panel on, con- on whether constitutional changes are needed to limit government. To lead our discussion, we've enlisted the help of Judge David Centel. I believe that he's so well known to this group that he truly needs no introduction. Most of you have... (laughs) (laughs) Most of you have clerked for him or argued cases before him or shared time and meals with him, and there isn't much I can tell you in three or four minutes' time that you don't already know about him. So without using any more of this panel's time, please help me welcome Judge David Sintel. Good morning.
1: Not too much more than 200 years ago, we, our ancestors, our forebears, adopted a constitution and a set of bills of right to go with that constitution, designed in at least part, large part, to limit government. Only a dozen and a half, fewer than a dozen and a half times since then has it become necessary in the public view to amend that constitution, and two of those canceled each other out. Nonetheless, we still have, perhaps, if not the most limited, certainly one of the most limited governments in the world and in history. It would be foolish, though, to deny that that limited government has been churning and chaining against its limits for decades, really going back to the Civil War. There's been an expansion of that government away from its limits. Sometimes those limits have come back, sometimes they haven't. So the question now is being raised, are there ways in which we should amend the Constitution in order to limit government to a role that we would see as the proper role of limited government? We have four distinguished panelists who are going to comment on it. Now, consistent with Mr. Reuter, I'm not going to offer them introductions. There are bios in the end of the book, so I can think of nothing sillier than standing here reading to you that which you could read for yourself. I would feel like a lawyer again if I were doing that. (laughs) Without further ado then, coming to us from Yale University, Yale Law School, will be Mr. William, Professor William Eskridge, who will then be followed in order that I will announce as we go along.
2: Uh, So I want to start with, why is uh, the national government so large? You know, why do we have these long security lines? They might be related questions. Well, there are three possible explanations. Uh, One reason might be the problems are big and getting bigger, problems of international terror, nuclear proliferation, complex economy, uh, threats to the environment. If the problems are big and complex, that's probably going to call forth bigger government. A second possible reason is that we the people want bigger government, perhaps for the first reason, and we're willing to accept uh, long lines, etc., because we want government to be doing more regulation. Now, a third possible reason, and maybe in combination with the other two, however, uh, is that we might have big government because of dysfunctions. We might have big government because of log rolling and compromising within the legislature, where special interests, as in the Smoot-Hawley tariff and a number of other pieces of legislation, uh, each trade off with one another so that the overall size of government gets bigger and bigger as each group is paid off uh, in its rent-seeking way. We might also have bigger government for another dysfunctional reason, and that is turf grabbing uh, by federal governmental agencies. That might be one reason why we have so many security lines. Maybe it's not a special interest compromise. Maybe it's uh, uh, butt protection on the part of security people uh, who uh, then impose all these costs on us. So those might be the reasons why we have big government. Uh, And some of those reasons are all right, and some of those reasons are lamentable. Uh, Following the framers of the 1789 Philadelphia Convention, uh, the society has asked us this question. Can we make structural or constitutional changes Uh, that will shrink the national government in appropriate ways. In other words, in ways that will not derogate from what we the people want or the ability to address genuine problems that need be, uh, but that do address uh, issues of special interest log rolling and turf protection. And some of the items we've been asked to address are the uh, line item veto, term limits, and the national initiative. Uh, Now, the main mechanisms that the society has suggested to us um, have been at least two of them tested and we have data and i have some thoughts on the third one uh, and i go in surprisingly different directions on the three uh, i'm most pessimistic i think on the line item veto which we've tried briefly at the federal level didn't produce a lot of shrinkage in government uh, at the state level we do have a lot of experience with line item vetoes overwhelming majority of states have and have had line item vetoes and these have been studied relentlessly by political scientists Using comparative data regression analyses and other sophisticated treatments to determine does this one variable, the line item veto, contribute to the shrinkage of government? And the studies on the whole by political scientists of all political stripes have found either no effect or a small effect of the line item veto on the size of government at, say, the state level. There is little and I think uh, virtually no persuasive evidence that the line item veto reduces the size of government the main effect that political scientists have found is that the line item veto which of course gives more power to the governor the line item veto um, uh, uh... energizes the governor's bargaining power which might be used for bigger government it might be used for smaller government so it benefits the constituencies of the governor in a systematic way which is unpredictable as to its ultimate effect so at least based upon the studies uh... and the unimpressive performance in the clinton administration uh, I would not uh, be optimistic on the line of veto. Uh, on the term limits, uh, we don't have a lot of political science uh, data. Uh, we certainly don't have experience at the federal level, except voluntary term limitations. Um, in my opinion, uh, term limits are not likely to head off the main dysfunctions that I would be concerned about, and that is the rent seeking log rolling on the part of special interest groups and the turf protection by agencies. because of course the term limits don't apply to the agencies. Now maybe that would be a, a good idea. You don't need a constitutional amendment for that. You could do that by statute. But term limiting your representatives uh, does not address the agency problem uh, and I'm not sure that it, protect, uh, it it. solves the special interest problem. Even recently elected representatives, such as the Democrats who've been elected in substantial numbers to the new Congress, they are not going to waddle into Capitol Hill in January. You know, Lambs and naive. Uh, They're going to waddle in there, uh, stoked to their gills with special interest money and special interest influence. Now don't laugh because the Republicans did that the same in 1995. This cuts both ways. So I'm, at least as a theoretical matter, uh, not all that optimistic even about uh, term limits. Now as to the initiative uh, or the referendum, say at the national level, now here again we have a lot of experience at the municipal and the state level since the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Most academics, uh, certainly at the Yale Law School, are quite hostile to this, but of course most academics do not look at the evidence systematically. Uh, My colleague and former student, John Matsusaka, however, at USC, has looked at the evidence much more systematically in his excellent book, For the Many or the Few, that was published in 2004. And so we have a number of political science studies. This is the best one I've read. And what Matsusaka finds is that in states and municipalities, particularly states with the initiative, uh, those states in the period from 1970 to about 2000 uh, have uh, substantially lower taxes, substantially lower spending, and substantially greater localization of government. And this is controlling for a number of variables. Does he control for all variables? Of course not. It's very complicated. But he controls for a lot. Now, Matsusaka also found uh, that the initiative in the early 20th century, not the late, but the early 20th century when you first had them, uh, actually helped increase the size of government because urban interests in the early 20th century were underrepresented in the legislatures. They wanted more government, and so the initiative actually fueled uh, their desire for more and larger government. So according to Matsusaka, as a theoretical matter, initiatives don't inherently produce government uh... in the direction of lesser or more government what he thinks that it inherently does is that it produces government in the direction of electoral preferences Now that might be good uh... and it might be good from the limited government agenda if you think that the preferences of the electorate will will still remain in favor of limited government i don't exactly know what the preferences are today or what they'll be tomorrow uh... so it's quite possible Now, if you think, then, that national government is too big because of these special interest log rolls and turf grabbing, uh, and not because it represents popular preferences, then you might want to consider the national initiative as your device for constitutional change. I don't think you'd ever get this through uh, the constitutional amendment process, but but that's another matter. Uh, I'm also not sure the national initiative would ultimately diminish the size of government. I'm just not sure of this at the national level. There might be some workability problems. Moreover, some political scientists, such as Harvard's Paul Peterson, argued that issues of redistribution, which are often rent-seeking issues, redistributive issues, Peterson argues, in a political system such as ours of federalism, do naturally gravitate toward the national level and away from the local and state level where people can vote with their feet. Uh, if that's the case, if Peterson's hypothesis is correct, you might see the national initiative subject to some of the same kinds of rent seeking and log rolling that you've uh, already seen. Uh, moreover, you might think, and this is interesting, uh, that the US Senate, uh, which is disproportionately representing the small population states of the sagebrush West, uh, might be a break on big government at this point. Um, uh, and that break might actually be diminished with a national initiative where the larger population states, such as California, uh, would play a larger role. So I'm ultimately somewhat pessimistic that structural constitutional change will necessarily limit the size of the federal government. Uh, I'll just throw out uh, this other idea in the minute or two I have remaining. Uh, You might also consider, this is going outside of what the um, society asked us to discuss, but you might also consider an individual rights kind of an amendment. Now, depending on where you're coming from, you might want to redo the Fourth Amendment, which make it a home of a privacy right that includes protections not only for the body but of the home. That might shrink government in some ways. Maybe more attractive to more of you would be to redo the Fifth Amendment. That's the takings clause, which is almost never enforced by the U.S. Supreme Court. You might redo the Fifth Fifth Amendment uh, to regulate what we call regulatory takings, uh, which is a way that the national, state, and local governments uh, often grow at the expense of uh, small businesses. Uh, now, don't ask me to suggest language uh, for such amendments. Judge Sintel, uh, who's a learned jurist, can draft the language. <laughs> the
1: judges don't do that. <laughs> judges
2: don't do that. Well, I'd, I'd ask, I'd ask uh, Judge Sintel to draft the language uh, because, however phrased, Uh, Whatever amendment you would come up with, even for someone as learned and excellent as Judge Sintel, you can bet your bottom dollar that you attorneys would litigate the hell out of it. Uh, But in fact, uh, litigation, particularly for a revived Fifth Amendment, uh, litigation actually might discourage aggressive government regulation in certain arenas. In other words, government would be scared off by the prospect of litigation and not just by the actual constitutional language. Now, the problem with a revised Fifth Amendment or even Fourth Amendment would be query uh, would the amendment disable government from doing things that we need the government to do, uh, and would it stop the government from doing the things that are rent seeking or turf grabbing uh, that we think are dysfunctional?.
0: Thank you.
1: you may have heard the reference to the danger of California having more power now to speak, on behalf of California. We'll have Professor Daniel Loewenstein from the University of California, Los Angeles Law School. Let's hear from UCLA.
3: Thank you very much. I've only been living in California since 1968. I'm still a New York boy. I'm going to be uh, even more skeptical about this general uh, uh, notion of attempting to limit government uh, through constitutional change uh, than Bill was, Uh, and in fact, uh, we did have a little bit of a caucus over the telephone a week or so ago, and I'm afraid that uh, that's probably going to be a theme uh, running through this uh, panel, Uh, but uh, I am going to limit myself primarily to the uh, uh, electoral Proposals. Uh, In fact, when I first uh, got a letter uh, asking me to be on this panel, I looked at the title. I I was confused as to why. I thought maybe they had either sent it to the wrong person or uh, sent me the wrong panel uh, until I read the paragraph of description and I saw that they were talking about some of these devices. My my field, uh, primary field, has been election law, Um, but I think my skepticism, uh, you know, my sort of guess is that the skepticism would go over to the other kinds of devices too. Um, uh, and just to tell you where I'm headed, my, my, ultimately I think that uh, we actually do live in a democracy uh, despite the skepticism that a lot of people have when they think about the political process and ultimately uh, uh, matters are deci- major matters are decided uh, by what the public thinks. And uh, uh, it's the debate of ideas. And uh, so if you want to limit government, uh, I think uh, what you need to do is to persuade the public that it's a good idea to limit government. Um, So let me talk about, I I will talk briefly about term limits initiatives. And uh, I'm going to throw in an extra item because I think it, it, uh, well, for reasons I'll explain, uh, redistricting and why I'm skeptical about all three of them. Uh, term limits, uh, we do have some experience uh, um, uh, with term limits now in California. Uh, other states do as well. Um, any of you who think that uh, term limits uh, are likely to lead to a legislature more to your liking, I invite you to come and visit California. Uh, I look forward to meeting with you, spending time with you, having a good time with you and you can observe the California legislature and if you go home having the same opinion, I will be deeply shocked. I believe that the California legislature is probably the most liberal legislature uh, that we've ever had in this country. Uh, I don't know, I haven't looked at the Massachusetts legislature, maybe they would give us some competition. Uh, But you know, I just don't think that – I think what term limits uh, does is make legislatures less effective um, uh, than they would otherwise be, whatever thats that they're trying to do by way of public policy. Uh, because the, the real problem is if, if legislators came to the legislature with a little label on their forehead, uh, you know, which would say either uh, leadership or backbencher – uh, and you could apply term limits only to those that say backbencher. I wouldn't have any particular. You know, I, I still wouldn't favor term limits, but um, I don't think it would be a, a major problem. But uh, uh, leadership uh, is lame duck uh, the moment it comes into office uh, with term limits, and I and and uh, I, I think. I have I don't live in I used to live in sacramento i I, was, I you know I knew something about what was going on in the legislature now I rely more on second hand accounts but all the second hand accounts that I get from across the political spectrum is that uh, uh, the legislature especially the assembly which has been most affected by term limits has just become a dysfunctional organization um, initiatives uh I haven't read John Matsusaka's book yet but I I know John and I, I think highly of him and I you know have no doubt that that uh, his conclusions are well founded but so let's take it as uh, f- as given that uh, some experience with initiatives shows that there is a statistical tendency uh, to uh, reduce uh, state budgets um, th- there are two problems with that first of all John is a uh, uh, a, 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 well, is he an economist or a political scientist? Uh, he's, but, at the but he's a business. A, he's a social scientist, okay? Uh, he's not a constitutional designer, and he doesn't purport to be. Uh, he's properly studying what has happened and perhaps extrapolating to what tends to happen under uh, current circumstances. But uh, uh, these are not laws of physics, And what has happened doesn't mean that they will continue to happen under different political circumstances. Uh, So even assuming that that is correct, I don't think you can project that into the indefinite future, nor if you're thinking about initiatives at the federal level, uh, um, as Bill said, and I agree, you you can't assume that the dynamics of it are going to be the same at the federal level as they are at the state level. Uh, But there's... Another question, and that is, what do you mean by limited government? Is it simply a matter of how much money the government spends? And, le- and let me just give you, uh, uh, you know, example from California. Uh, we've had Proposition 13. We also had a less well-known initiative shortly after that uh, that limited spending in the state government. So let's assume, either on John Matsusaka's evidence or uh, uh, just looking at those, you know, prob- maybe those have had a tendency to control spending to some extent in California uh it's leaving aside side effects such as uh great shift of power in California from local government to state government which may be good bad or indifferent depending on depending on your views but uh there are other things besides spending money uh one of uh, one major uh, initiative that was passed in California uh, not too many years after I moved there uh, Opposition 20, I believe, created uh, the State Coastal Commission, uh, which was, I I believe at the time, uh, an enormous advance in land use regulation over an enormous area, namely the uh, uh, California coastline. Uh, Now, I'm not arguing for that or against that, but it would seem to me that if – and I assume the California Coastal Commission, so far as public spending is concerned, is not a particularly major – item, and it's probably a very small item in the state budget. But is that limited government uh, when the initiative is used uh, to extend regulation uh, in that uh, that kind of dramatic way, if the initiative can be used for that purpose uh, and also has the effect to marginally uh, decrease federal, uh, state spending, would you say that's uh, a, a net? Would you say that's a limitation of government? Or would you say that's an expansion of government? More generally, I would say, and I think everybody who studied the initiative uh, will tend to agree with this, if you look at it over time, uh, the initiative does not belong to liberals. It does not belong to conservatives. Uh, it's been used for by both of those you know, sides quite effectively as well as by all kinds of other groups that cut across those kinds of liberal conservative lines. Uh, it should be considered on its own merits, but not as uh, something that is going to benefit one side of the political spectrum or the other, uh, I think, based on experience. And then let me just say a word about redistricting because uh, I spent the decade of the 1980s defending the uh, California redistricting plan, uh, it, both in court and in public. Um, uh, against uh, Republican charges that, you know, this was the greatest crime in the history of mankind. The Wall Street Journal editorial page certainly seemed to think that. And I believe that many Republicans at the time uh, thought that... uh, Uh, redistricting change would be the key to Republican electoral success. Uh, Now in the current decade it's been interesting because uh, uh, a different ox was gored in many states uh, by redistricting uh, uh, after the 2000 census. Um, And so a lot of Democrats have been very upset uh, by redistricting and the main push uh... not in california but in other states has, for a redistricting change has been from the democrats uh... and many republicans uh, have been resisting it for example uh, mike carvin some of you may have heard yesterday give a stirring uh... address on uh... uh... his view of civil rights um, uh... he's been defending uh... republican plans uh, around the country uh, w- with pretty good effectiveness uh, against democratic challenges Uh, Here again, I I think both groups are mistaken. I I don't have time to go into all the details here. It's a very complicated subject. But uh, uh, redistricting has very little effect, I think, on uh, uh, the general thrust of partisan or policy politics in this country. Uh, It can be of great importance to individual politicians, which is why they care about it so much. Uh, But I think that the press and many politically active people greatly exaggerate uh, the significance of it so i just want to come back and conclude with the idea that uh... if you want limited government uh... the way to do it is not to rely on gimmicks uh... the way to do it is the old-fashioned way uh... to convince the public that it's a good idea uh... my first flight uh... out of burbank on wednesday when i was coming over here uh... uh got canceled so i had more time than i expected uh sitting in airports. And uh, I spent uh, at least a little bit of that profitably reading an article on what I think is the current issue of National Review by uh, Ramesh uh, Panuru, uh, I think a uh, rather astute uh, political analyst. He was writing about the crisis of conservatism at the present juncture uh, following the elections, although I think he had to write the piece before the election. And uh, let me just read you a sentence or two from his uh, conclusion Uh, he's referring to this crisis of uh, conservatism. He says, that crisis can be boiled down to two propositions. The first is that, at least as the American electorate is presently constituted, there is no imaginable political coalition in America capable of sustaining a majority that takes a reduction of the scope of the federal government as one of its central tasks. That's the bad news for those of you who want limited government. The good news, which isn't as good, but I guess it's good for you. Uh, the second is that modern American conservatism is incapable of organizing itself without taking that as a central mission. So what he's saying is that uh, the conservative movement can't stand without a wing that is pushing for uh, limited government. but the conservative movement cannot possibly succeed if it leads with that. So I think you have a burden of persuasion uh, and I think you have a a tricky but not unmanageable uh, political uh, task to uh, work within the conservative movement to make sure that you get your share of what you want without seeking so much that you undermine the conservative movement. But whether that's the right analysis or not, what I'm convinced of is you're not going to do it by gimmicks. You're going to have to do it by
1: hard political work. Thank you, Professor. And one more academic from Harvard Law School, Richard Parker.
4: Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, I want to pick up where Dan left off, but first of all, uh, come back to, to Bill's Three hypotheses uh, explaining the steady expansion of government. If you believe there is uh, such a thing as uh, a historical logic, if you're a Marxist, in other words, and believe that the the first or third explanation, uh, or the two in combination, are the key big problems and institutional dysfunction, uh, then this is uh, hopeless, and there's nothing very much. Uh, to talk about, except at the margins, the key, as uh, Dan suggested, uh, I think, is what people actually want. That was Bill's explanation number two. Now, on election day, less than two weeks ago, a polling group called McLaughlin and Associates uh, polled voters, actual voters, and here are the results: 59% favor smaller government with fewer services; 28% favor larger government with many services may be surprising break it down republicans uh... republican voters people who voted republican seventy four percent favor smaller government thirteen percent larger government democrats this is more surprising forty one percent favor smaller government and only four percent more forty five percent favor larger government Independence. this, of course, is most important, 68% favor smaller government with fewer services, 20%, less than a third of the f- first number, favor larger government with uh, many services. Well, if that is, in fact, any kind of accurate rec- representation of uh, public opinion now and in the recent past, uh, it poses a strategic question, and that is... Uh, Uh, how to how to make use of that fact how to appeal to that uh, to that body of opinion and by what strategy might public opinion be mobilized uh, in order to produce some actual change now of course the classic strategy and I'm gonna work up to to the question we were asked on this panel but the classic strategy would be to elect candidates or members of a political party committed to a particular Uh, approach to this matter, Uh, smaller government. Uh, That was tried, of course, most recently in the mid-1990s, and I think we know uh, at least what the current result is, and I don't have much uh, hope on that score. Uh, Perhaps some of you do, uh, and it can always change, but at least for the moment, uh, I think it's best to be uh, pessimistic on that score. A second approach, of course, is uh, to interpret the Constitution we have. Uh, People in the Federalist Society have been creative and assiduous assiduous in uh, pushing this strategy. Uh, Talk of the Constitution in exile was current for a while. Uh, The effort was to persuade judges uh, to interpret the Constitution uh, uh, so as to impose uh... stricter limits on government and to select judges uh... who would uh... who could be uh... subject to such persuasion uh, i guess my answer to that approach at this point would be uh... blackman stevens o'connor kennedy and suitor uh, i think it's much like uh... the nineteen ninety four electoral victory uh... it's too unreliable as a strategy moreover for people who favor smaller government whether they're republicans democrats or independents uh to rely on the courts i think would be to fall into the same trap that the feminists fell into when they relied on the courts to protect reproductive freedom uh it wound up being a somewhat unreliable victory and it certainly did harm to their movement so uh how how better to think about this problem it seems to me we might start with two concepts of what government is. What is it that the American people overwhelmingly want to limit? On one hand, you could define government in, terms, uh, in the terms of our uh, pamphlet for this panel, in terms of its power and reach, the sum total of laws and regulations and so forth <clears throat> that are promulgated and, and enforced. Uh, on the other hand, however, uh, one could think of the government quote-unquote that the American people want to limit not in terms of its power and reach but rather as the governing class uh... by which i mean not just the bureaucracy and the interest groups but more importantly uh... the individuals who believe or who come to believe once in office that they know better than the american people that they are entitled uh... to rule the american people I'm talking about individuals uh, whose main characteristic is uh, fancy education but whose main psychological characteristic is a sort of narcissism and grandiosity uh, that leads them to believe that detachment from public opinion is in principle a good thing i.e. these are the, the governing class is the class that hates democracy that it seems to me uh, is the government that the American people want to limit. And if we can limit the governing class, we may wind up in the end limiting the power and reach of government. But uh, it seems to me, in any event, the first task uh, is the more important. Now, how to do that, structural reforms, uh, Dan and and Bill have have discussed, redistricting, term limits, uh, initiative and referendum, all, it seems to me, are valuable as kind of tactical strikes. And there there are... as i'm sure many of you know powerful counterattacks underway now that have been underway for some time trying uh, to uh, cut the guts out of uh, initi- uh, out of initiative and referendum uh, out of as out of term limits and out of uh, redistricting uh reforms those fights are always worth fighting and i have great admiration for the people who've engaged in them uh but uh, i want to suggest something different the panel uh, is asked whether constitutional changes might uh, make a difference Uh, and I guess was it uh, I forget whether Bill or Dan uh, I think maybe it was Bill uh, who said well you you put in some fancy new amendment uh, limiting government and uh, uh, Blackman Stevens O'Connor Kennedy and Souter will interpret it uh, as they please Uh, So I would like to reword the question just a little bit. Not constitutional changes, but constitutional change in and of itself, for its own sake. That's the strategy I want to recommend. This would take us back to basics. What's the basic? The basic is popular sovereignty. Uh, The Constitution is the symbol, the embodiment of popular sovereignty, both at the national and the state level, Constitutional change, per se, is a muscle that has to be exercised to be maintained. It's a muscle that we have allowed at the national level uh, to atrophy uh, now for whatever it is, 35 years, uh, and that I think we must start using again at both. We must continue to use at the state level and start using again at the national level. Let me say a word about state level and national level. First... Uh, Yesterday in the New York Times, there was an op-ed piece by a couple of people who, for all I know, are here today, David Rivkin and Lee Casey, uh, criticizing uh, the uh, rising number of constitutional amendments at the state level. And I'll read you two sentences. They say, to enshrine the definition of marriage – they're talking perhaps most specifically about the marriage amendments – in a state's constitution, removes the issue from the give and take of the normal political process. That process rarely produces an absolute victory for any side, but it also rarely results in absolute defeat. The defeated party can rally, regroup, and try again. That argument is based on a simple mistake, and that is that at the state level, the the process of constitutional amendment is an a, is a part of the ordinary political process. Sometimes the legislature is involved. uh, Sometimes uh, initiative kicks off a state constitutional amendment. Always in 49 out of the 50 states, a vote of the people is required uh, to amend the Constitution. Whenever a state constitutional is amended, uh, whether it's uh, marriage or the Michigan Affirmative Action Amendment, uh, or the Arizona English as Official Language Amendment. What's most important, in my opinion, is not the substance of the amendment, but the fact that that the Constitution was amended, popular sovereignty was reasserted, the governing class was given a swift kick. At the national level, uh, I've been involved for—I uh, know I've only got a minute here—but okay, one minute. I've been involved for uh, 12 years in an effort to amend the U.S. Constitution in the last 35 years in which there has been no amendment uh, one cause has maintained overwhelming support of the american people for seventeen years half of that period that's the flag amendment giving congress power again as it used to have to uh, punish physical desecration of the flag this is an amendment that would uh... have expanded the power and reach of government a little bit but in terms of my second concept of government, challenging the governing class, it would have limited government in an important way. My experience talking with senators about this issue over twelve years is that their narcissism and arrogance is virtually unbounded and in some bounds need to be imposed, and there's nothing better than amending the Constitution.
1: Next up we leave the at least full-time academics to come to someone who may have to interpret anything that's passed, and that's Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Frank Easterbrook. I don't know whether he's going to speak on behalf of the narcissistic and arrogant or not, but at any rate he'll be
5: Did <laughs> I think by definition I'm in that class, aren't I, aren't I?
1: A personal predilection also, I think, (laughs) Frank.
5: Ouch. Well, like, like other members of the Federalist Society's libertarian wing, I would really like to see a government limited to genuine public goods like defense and basic education, a government that keeps its fingers out of both the economy and personal life. Is constitutional change necessary to achieve this? Yes and no. Yes, because the current Constitution is not one of limited government. No, because not even with constitutional change uh, can those forms of limits be created. The national government grew for social and political reasons that can't be called back with words. People chose larger national government, and they chose it through constitutional amendment. Just think of a few of them. There's Section 5 of the 14th Amendment allowing the national government to regulate the states. There's universal <coughs> suffrage. There's the 16th Amendment on the income tax. There was the direct election of senators. Those are the principal causes for the state, the size of the national government as it is today. No one, not even Richard Epstein, proposes to limit suffrage to property holders today. <laughs> So if you're not planning to repeal those constitutional amendments or change them, there we are. Live with it. It seems to me necessary to to go back and think about the sources of modern constitutional power at the federal level and ask what could be done about them, even with creative uh, judicial interpretations. Let's start with the commerce power. The commerce power was limited at the outset, because commerce was local in this nation. It was really very expensive to put your goods on a cart and ship them a thousand miles from one part of the country to another. Today, shipping is cheap, communication is cheap, the division of labor means that the whole economy depends on goods from other states and goods from other nations. Thus, national power expands. The Constitution has stayed what it was, the world has changed and power shifts to the national level. No doctrinal change could offset that. Suppose tomorrow morning we woke up and learned that Wickard against Philburn had been overruled and that E.C. Knight had become the accepted doctrine again. You, you may remember E.C. Knight a holding by Chief Justice Melville Fuller that tells you how long ago it was, right? that the only thing Congress could regulate as commerce was something that physically crossed state borders. There was no power to regulate mere effects on commerce. Suppose E.C. Knight is reinstated. Well, what happens? As a first approximation, nothing happens because you have to remember how the commerce power was used in the period between E.C. Knight and Wickard against Filburn. What Congress did was start, start enacting statutes that said Unless people do X, the goods they make are not going to be allowed to cross state borders. That is, border closing statutes were enacted, hot cargo statutes. And so the minimum wage was created, child labor laws were created, lotteries were abolished through the mechanism of closing the borders to goods that had not been made in conformity with those rules. That form of power could be reasserted. There's nothing that prevents it under the Constitution. And, oh, by the way, you also have to remember that what went with E.C. Knight and is actually still with us is a Diodan's version of the commerce power. You you remember Lopez, the Supreme Court, held that Congress had no power to enact a rule saying that there can't be any guns within 1,000 feet of schools. No commerce, the Supreme Court said. Remember what happened? Congress reenacted the statute to say, you cannot have within a thousand feet of a school any gun that has ever crossed a state border, right? The gun became a form of deodan. The commerce power kind of clung to it as it moved around, and no one has even bothered challenging that law because it's so obviously effective under settled doctrine. Now, one might doubt that this was sensible, but that's what went with the old E.C. Knight version of thinking about the nature of the commerce power. Then, of course, there's the necessary and proper clause. When the commerce power wasn't enough, there is this ancillary clause that says Congress can make all laws necessary and proper to carry out the foregoing powers. We I mean, Think back way, way back uh, to the Bank of the United States. Congress charters the bank. There's no banking power, but it may be related to the taxing and currency powers. That power could have been trimmed by saying, that only really necessary, necessary laws are permissible, and who would decide what is necessary? Why, the judges, of course, would tell you what's necessary. And that was Maryland's argument in McCulloch against Maryland, that the power had to be uh, trimmed back by emphasizing the word necessary. And Chief Justice Marshall said, but look, think of the consequences of that. That really would put the judiciary in charge of the whole United States, because the judges would define what's necessary, and now you've moved the legislative power to the judicial branch. The Federalist Society surely knows that well, rightly condemning judges who write into the Constitution their own views of wise social policy on the death penalty, on abortion, or on religion. Well, that's equally true of economic matters. The judicial role has to be modest. It has to allow the legislature to set policy, because otherwise you've delivered the government into the hands of people you can't fire. And, of course, the consequence of that, as we know from the upshot of McCulloch, is that you wind up with an uncomfortably large federal government. Then, of course, there's the taxing power. Uh, By abolishing the apportionment requirement, the 16th Amendment gave the federal government the power to control 100% 100% of the entire economy. It can tax income. It can not tax income, achieving its goals via tax expenditures, that is, by encouraging those things that aren't taxed. It can tax and then subsidize using the dollars that is just collected from you, or it can grant the dollars back on condition. So that combination of powers, it's right there, it's a logical consequence of the 16th Amendment, it gives the government control the federal government control over almost anything it chooses to control one just has to get over it there is nothing one can do by creative interpretation of the existing Constitution to trim it back so what changes could work well I think pretty much has been said about the line item veto if you study what happens in the states that use it the answer is not very much of interest uh, how about Here's one that didn't even make the program, but it used to be thought of a lot. How about a balanced budget constitutional amendment? Insist that the national government have a balanced budget. Well, you you remember why that went off the agenda. It's, it's always worth a reminder. Somebody came up with the proposition that if the government had to balance its budget and therefore would spend less, why, what could it do? It could just enact more laws requiring natural people to spend on their own, that is, more regulations in lieu of a budget. And the off-budget regulations could be even more expensive than the on-budget regulations. So the balanced budget amendment vanished. Term limits, I think enough has been said about that, but I, well, not quite enough. I will point out that we, we have constitutional term limits in the United States for the President The President of the United States cannot serve more than eight years, more than two terms. Well, technically, if you came in with less than two years left to go, you could serve up to ten. But there's a ten-year max limit on President of the United States. And I don't know anybody who says that that has had the effect of diminishing executive power via other sources of power in the national government. Uh, what term limits could do, of course, is make the government prone to the yes, minister phenomenon. The short-termers are controlled by the permanent government, that is, the bureaucracy that pats the short-termers on the head and says, yes, minister, and then goes off and does exactly what it wants. Now, as, <clears throat> as for the referendum and initiative, uh, there, there is some evidence that, it, that the existence of these devices slightly reduces spending. But I do think it worthwhile, uh, if, if only to uh, earn my reputation as the, the arrogant minister of the perpetual federal government or something like that, to point out that this guy, the, the guy whose silhouette is everywhere, uh, was thinking long and hard about this in the design of the government. Uh, direct democracy uh, was considered and found wanting at the time our constitution was established in 1787 precisely because it was so prone to dominance by majority faction. The Majority factions would run roughshod over minority interests and the design of a representative democracy was one in which there would be some agency space in which the representatives arrogant or not could make decisions that might represent some aspect of the public interest the whole public, not just the majority. Now of course it turns out that that form of government is highly prone to minority coalitions. Uh, The dairy farmers get together with the steel industry and they come up with programs that are beneficial to them at the expense of the rest of us. But the alternative, the direct democracy alternative is one in which decisions are prone to majority faction and of course are made by the most ignorant people you can imagine That is, us. You you may have noticed when you hear your representatives in Washington or even cabinet officers talk about public policy that they usually talk at a pretty shallow level. And that's because even if you're a full-time policymaker, you do nothing but serve in the cabinet or serve in Congress, the choices that need to be made are so complex that you couldn't possibly keep up with all of them. Members of Congress are doomed to be shallow. Now move that decision to the level of the electorate, where the electorate is not full-time policymakers. They're presumably full-time doing whatever it is they do for a living. Is it worth their while to learn in detail? No, it's not, because everybody knows that your chance of influencing the outcome of any election is much less than your chance of being run down by a truck on the way to the polling place. And therefore, people are rationally ignorant. So handing very complex choices to the rationally ignorant doesn't seem to me a a very constructive solution. What we do know, by the way, is that referenda have cut the expenditures of government by a small amount. But much of that cut has come in the area of education. Now, education is one of those public goods that even limited government people generally tend to favor because there are many benefits to outsiders, but you see local communities using referenda to cut back on school board's budgets because the benefits of the education are felt elsewhere in the country and the costs are paid locally. It may be rational behavior locally, but bad all around. So, bottom line, should we be unhappy about this? I'm very much of Churchill's view that government by democracy is the worst form of government ever invented except for every other form. The United States has done pretty well. We have a small government relative to the EU and China. We can keep that up by promoting competition among governmental units and kinds of of government. Uh, And we should be happy uh, with what we have and not have pie-in-the-sky hopes for something better. Thank you very much.
1: Ordinarily... At this point, in moderating or exacerbating a panel, I have called upon the panelists to rebut each other. However, today, there have been no real joining of issue, so i'm not going <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a rebuttal I'm going to give it up to each panelist if you have been inspired by your colleagues' comments to say something else, whether in rebuttal or praise uh. I'll give you three or four minutes to do that in, and then we'll throw the floor open to, uh, can you pull the plug? Can you still hear me when the light went out for a minute? Uh, then we'll throw the floor open to the audience. Beginning in the same order we had before, Professor Eskridge?
2: Well, I actually do think there is a disagreement on the panel. Um, I think two of us, uh, Richard Parker and I, are more favorably inclined toward the initiative. Frank uh, Frank Easterbrook, Uh, Seems very much opposed, and that understates it. Um, And Dan Lowenstein, I think you're sort of pessimistic about the utility of it. And I think there actually is some disagreement on the panel uh, about this idea of can we trust the people with important normative decisions. And um, although I think the initiative is fraught with all sorts of difficulties uh, at the national level, uh, I'm not persuaded by the evidence. And again, I would say let's look at the evidence. Uh, And the political science evidence, uh, liberals have been saying for 30 years, oh, the people can't make these complicated decisions. Frank has really gone native on this. Uh, He's really (laughs) echoing... No, he's echoing the New York Times sort of boilerplate. Uh, But what political scientists have been doing, unlike the liberals, political scientists have been looking at the evidence. And they've been looking at voter choices. This is the John Matsusaka book. He's been looking at voter choices. And Matsusaka did not find that education has been castrated by initiatives. You can use the California proposition to make that argument, but Matsusaka did not find that as a generalization. Uh, Moreover, a lot of political scientists have been studying voter choices. And yes, choices are complicated. Of course that's true. Yes, voters are rationally ignorant. But models have been developed by political science going to cues and signals. Uh, And the debate on these uh, initiatives and referenda over a several month period, usually, and have found that people are not making decisions that go against their deeper preferences. That the combination of the First Amendment and the vigorous debate, that, that actually I think Richard Parker and I are, are sort of at one with, I think it is very important to discuss these issues. And if you think we shouldn't spend money on education, well, I think that should be discussed. Okay? Uh, I'm not in favor of the flag burning amendment, but I'm with you, Richard that this is something actually well worth the people's discussion and not just Frank Easterbrook and Nino Scalia and the arrogant senators, uh, many of whom have been defeated for re-election uh, this year in the US Senate, right? Uh, so I think something needs to be said in favor favor of the American people's ability uh, and indeed maybe their right to have their say in great normative choices and uh, most of the American people as Richard's polls suggest are in favor of more limited government. And I'm sure they're very discriminating. They're not in favor of more limited government as regards security and maybe not even as regards education in most places. But they are in favor of more limited government as to a lot of the areas uh, that are porked to death by the Democratic legislature and by the Republican legislature. It has not made much of a difference in terms of pork production, uh, the ideology of the people producing it. So I think there's big division of the panel on that.
1: I think I will arbitrarily and capriciously jump back to Frank since I think you may have joined issue most with him. Frank, would you have anything further to add?
5: Oh, I, I deny agreeing in any respect whatsoever with the editorial page of the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I didn't when I quit reading it.
5: <laughs> when, when, when I, when I you now I, I pointed to that guy up there, you know, the Madison silhouette, <coughs> silhouette for a reason, Uh, The point I was making about the difference between direct and indirect democracy was not invented by the New York Times. Uh, It was the centerpiece of Madison's thinking about constitutional design, about the greatest piece of political theory that's ever been written in the United States, Madison's Federalist Number Ten. And one might think it would find a a home in a society called the Federalist Society, with Madison's silhouette everywhere in, in evidence. I also think it's a mistake when thinking about limited government to think about it in terms of the amount of pork. Pork is of course all those projects that you think are not worthwhile and somebody else does, but the government, the size of the government is not measured by the amount of pork, the number of federal buildings or bridges to nowhere. The size of the federal government is measured largely by the amount of regulation of private activity that it undertakes. That's not a a problem of pork. It's a problem of uh, far deeper uh, structural, with far deeper structural causes, and that's why I open by saying you get this out of suffrage and the 16th Amendment and Section 5 and the direct election of senators, all things that no one now is proposing to change.
1: Insofar as there is a divide, I'll jump back across it and ask uh, Richard Parker if he has anything to... uh uh... share with the group at this
4: moment okay i'll be be very brief uh... uh... view in a nutshell and i think perhaps bills as well is that given the sorry state of affairs uh... the crucial strategy is one that uh... many of you will remember as a blast from the past and that is power to the people uh... and for that uh... slogan i would cite, among other things a provision of the constitution that's long been a favorite in the federalist society and that's a few words in the tenth amendment the reference to the people uh... might uh... get some resonance here i'd also point to madison who made many statements about popular sovereignty uh... to go along with his uh... statements that that frank easterbrook has mentioned the only thing i would disagree with that bill said i agree with all of it with the exception of one word where he said that the right the that the people maybe have a right to rule. i just strike the word maybe. <laughs>
1: okay. Don't want to leave you out, man. Can you uh, yeah, I further think, enlighten
4: us?
3: Yeah, and I think the ordering is good because I, I think of the panelists, the one that I have the most disagreement with is Richard, uh, and I think in some ways it's more temperamental than it is uh, certainly ideological or even intellectual. Um because the idea of constitutional change for its own sake uh, is not uh, what I like to think about or, or favor uh, I'm more of the school if it ain't broke uh, don't fix it and uh, 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 and I think if Richard, in his original remarks, used the term popular sovereignty uh, the term that Madison used, I think, to describe the the bedrock of what we're trying to achieve and protect is the republican principle and I think that that's a better term Uh, I think that it it does uh, rest on the the idea that uh, uh, ultimately the government responds to and serves the people but it doesn't imply uh, a plebiscitary Uh, kind of system. Uh, My own belief, as I said in my initial remarks, is that our system is democratic, that it uh, does a good job of uh, ultimately reflecting uh, what the people of this country want and what the people of this country believe in, uh, but it does it in an enormously complicated way with billion mediations everywhere you turn around, which I think is good because it uh, is a kind of a break on on things. It's not that easy to get things done, but it also uh, allows uh, a vast uh, array of ways of participation and ways of trying to uh, get your interests protected or, or get your views across. Uh, now, despite having said that, I, I'm not actually an opponent of the initiative system I, 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 or initiative process. I'm actually a very mild supporter of it, basically uh, enough of a supporter, so uh, and given my temperament against change for its own sake, uh, I'm not inclined to uh, take it away from California, but I'm not inclined to recommend to those of you who live in places uh, that don't have it, that you adopt it. And I am definitely not inclined to recommend it to the Federal Government or at the, the national level. Uh, I think almost all the arguments for and against the initiative turn out to be greatly exaggerated. Uh, and the only reason that I am mildly in favor of it is I think it is one of this vast array of ways for people to uh, participate in the process, and uh, it probably helps some causes a little more than others, uh, but there are other things in the system that work against that, and it's just part of a a very large mix. It's not uh, a plebiscitary type of government uh, overall, which I think is what uh, Judge Easterbrook objects to, and I would agree with him
1: keep thinking when I hear the initiative of something Barney Frank said once, and I'm not accustomed to agreeing with Barney Frank, so I'll <laughs> neither agree or disagree, but he said if he lived in a state that had the initiative, he would think the legislators should turn their salaries back in because the people were doing their work for them.
3: If he still lives in Massachusetts, he does live in a state that has the initiative process. <laughs> they have
1: not near the uh, use of it California does, but as I say, I'm neither agreeing nor disagreeing. I simply remember him saying that once. We're going to go a little bit closer to the people now and move to the audience and receive the questions, and since there's plenty of time, short comments, I don't want anybody we've, – we've had the panel up here. We don't want to hear any more uh, speeches. You may, but we don't. Uh, there is a microphone over there. Is there also one over there? I take it there is. All right. Well, my personal predilection, I'll go first to my right. Thank you. Tell us who you are and where you're from, and then give us your question.
2: Can you hear me? Okay. I hear you. Uh, I am from Arizona where we two weeks ago voted on 19 separate ballot initiatives, Um, the most, I believe, in the country. In Arizona, we have recently passed the Arizona Voter Protection Act, which makes it virtually impossible to amend or overturn anything that is passed as an initiative. Seven of the propositions we voted on were state constitutional amendment propositions. I would just like some comments from the panel on... If we were to go to some sort of federal uh, initiative process or if more states were to adopt the process, what are your thoughts on that type of Voter Protection Act, which does make the uh, direct democracy more effective long-term but also um, makes this uninformed electorate have a great deal more power as well?
1: Uh, Richard, you're a... uh spokesman for initiative. What would be your comment on that? Then we'll move across the panel.
4: Well, I'm sure you know better than I do why the Voter Protection Act became so popular in Arizona. My understanding is that it is because uh, of an important sector of the governing class, the judiciary in Arizona, was simply uh, irresponsibly screwing around <laughs> with and trying to undermine... Judges do that. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and the voters have a right to, to respond... Uh, now, you say the voters are uninformed. I mean, that's an issue here. I, I, I think, uh, well, certainly the Matsusaka book, which I, like the others, think is a, is a terrific book, uh, and other writing by political scientists cast some, some doubt uh, on what you're saying. But it certainly seems to me that uh, the group that needs protection now uh, in their lawmaking capacities, the group that is under threat, uh, generally is uh, ordinary people uh, and I think something like the Voter Protection Act is reasonable. Uh, laws passed by uh, direct democracy can be overturned by direct democracy one example and then I'll stop. After Evans v. Romer there was a case that came out of Cincinnati in Cincinnati the people had passed uh, uh, some kind of a law that uh, it was complicated but it was, uh, seemed to uh, frustrate the ambitions uh, of the gay and lesbian community there and people became uh, infuriated about that. Well, people of Cincinnati overturned that law by direct democracy. That's, that's the way the process ought to work. Uh, I,
1: I'm going to move over to a judge who would never be guilty of irresponsibly screwing around. Uh, Frank, uh, <laughs> what would be your response
5: on that? I'm putting my academic hat back on since I still uh, retain some part-time academic affiliation. I would love to know what the experience has been in other states that have done similar things. It seems to me two things are happening at once. If you make the results of initiatives more durable, uh, you increase the stakes of the initiative in the first instance, so there would presumably be a greater fight over whether the initiative would be adopted. It would be very similar to having a rule saying, for example, any law once ina- once enacted cannot be repealed for some period of time uh, that make that raises the stakes of the law so you get more fighting over its adoption uh, and the the net effect of that is in principle almost impossible to determine i mean my my prediction would be that you would then have fewer successful initiatives uh, but each one would be more durable whether that's good or bad seems to me extremely hard to say without a study of other jurisdictions that have adopted a similar rule.
1: Dan, I'm going to go to you next since we've let Bill open up every time we'll let him close on this one.
3: Um, Every once in a while in California, we have to vote on some very obscure change in the law uh, uh, respecting um, chiropractors. And the reason for that is that uh, somewhere back in the 20s or 30s or something, they passed uh, an initiative uh, regulating chiropractors, and we have a provision in our constitution that says initiatives cannot be amended without approval of the, uh, by vote of the people. Uh, in 1972. Uh, the person who was drafting the coastal initiative which I referred to is a friend of mine I suggested to him that he put a provision in there allowing for amendments uh, and I think it required a two-thirds vote uh, of the legislature uh, and uh, some procedural things It had to be in print a certain number of days before it was voted on things like that uh, and he did that uh, and then I put the same provision into a, an initiative that I drafted a couple of years later Uh, And it has now become the practice, uh, not universal, but the usual practice in California to include a similar provision uh, in initiatives. Uh, I think uh, uh, since that time, I I have believed in California that the legislators, even though they don't like the the initiative process, respect initiatives and they respect the fact that they've been approved by vote of the people and they're not inclined even if they didn't particularly like the measure to mess around with it too much i think in most cases there may be exceptions so i think what i would say if it were up to me i think i might say uh... that um... for two years or four years or six years whatever period might work uh... uh... in order for an initiative to be amended uh... it would take say a two-thirds vote of the uh... Uh, the legislature, and then after that, it would just become, uh, it would achieve the status of any other law. I don't think just because it was adopted by initiative, it ought to, ha- it ought to be embedded uh, any differently than other laws.
2: Well, Let me use that excellent question about Arizona as a way to respond to Frank's invocation of Madison. Madison, frankly, was wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> he lost many of the votes at the Philadelphia Convention, much of what's in the Constitution, is over Madison's opposition. Madison wanted a council of revision where people like Frank could veto legislation. Not that he doesn't already. <laughs> okay? Not Frank, no. Uh, so, so let's not take Madison as the platinum standard on every issue. Moreover, remember, Madison in Federalist No. 10, he was not concerned about minorities the way we use that term today. He was concerned about property owners and maybe small businesses. Now, you can ask Lowenstein, Who poses the big threat to property owners and small businesses in California? It's the legislature. Every time they sit down in Sacramento, they've picked the pockets of property owners and small businesses in California. The initiative, I suspect the studies will show, have been the property owners and the small businesses' uh, revenge against the legislature. Okay? So let me get that canard off the table. Liberal New York Times canard. Now, here's how it relates to Arizona. And that is that if we did... Actually, seriously propose a constitutional amendment. There are a lot of choices you have to make. It's not just saying, oh, let's have an initiative. Uh, You could have an initiative to initiate legislation. You could limit your proposal to a referendum to revoke or veto legislation that had been adopted by the legislature. They would operate very differently, right? Uh, Most many states limit the things that can be subject to an initiative. Some states like Massachusetts for the constitutional thing. It has to go through the legislature in some way. There has to be a legislative filter, maybe a minority vote provision, uh, as they have in Massachusetts. Uh, So I think the Arizona question raises a very uh, good point about how you would structure uh, the proposed initiative or referendum, including how durable it would be. And the difficulty, of course, is is that you need more studies by John Matsusaka, uh, who, who really is the gold standard in this area. This is the John Matsusaka full employment seminar we have. (laughs) That is right. And for him to have little uh, camp followers, uh, John Matsusaka should incorporate, and then he could be the little cottage industry to help people design how they want to frame this constitutionally.
1: Bill inspired me to a thought I'm sure we've all heard many times but should never forget, and that is that no man's wife, life, property, or reputation is safe while the legislature is in session. Amen. Question from this side.
6: Uh, Alden Abbott, uh, McLean, Virginia. T- Two-part question. One what about a constitutional amendment that would combine a limit on public federal expenditures and on regulatory expenditures? The so notion of taxation by regulation and regulatory budget is, is becoming increasingly well established. Uh, second, what about uh, reviving a uh, combination of the Ninth Amendment and the unconstitutional conditions doctrine? Frank Easterbrook was pointing out after EC Knight how the ec Night limitations were gotten around by the Congress. Uh, of course, Brandy Barnett and others have called for an expanded role for the Ninth Amendment. What about saying some of these conditions you cannot ship uh, interstate unless you do such and such. Some of those might be deemed unconstitutional conditions under the applying a broad Ninth Amendment. Or does that uh, arrogate, give too much power to judges?
5: Well, I guess the first crack at that one should be given to a judge then, Frank. Yeah, you, you would never trust people like me to make decisions like that. <laughs> you, where the, the sort of argument you're making there is essentially a suggestion that the rationale of McCulloch be switched so that the judiciary says what is necessary. Uh, and the last thing you want to do is hand effective governmental powers to somebody you can't vote out of office. No sane person would have voted for me as a lifetime decider of what was good or important or a good condition on legislation or, or any of those things. Uh, and you know, <laughs> no, you'd have to be even more insane to vote for some of my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Anyone else want to crack at that
2: one? More questions.
3: More questions.
1: All right, more questions. Go back to my right.
6: Uh, Mark Middleton from St. Louis. Uh, Dan sort of alluded to this uh, very uh, tangentially, but can we talk uh, at at greater length about uh, supermajority provisions
2: and sunset provisions as potential uh, constitutional limitations on legislation? Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Dan, you want to bite that one first?
3: Well, um, you know, we do have a lot of supermajority requirements uh, uh, in our system. Uh, uh, some um, that are formally built in. Uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, constitutional amendments require uh, a greater vote, and so on. Uh, probably more even they're uh, uh, they're um, informal, but they have the same effect Uh gatekeeping. Uh, things in the legislative process, you know, you have to get out of a committee, and, and, and those things have changed a lot. I mean, the, the traditional notion of how a bill passes, especially in Congress, uh, is quite obsolete. But nevertheless, there are a lot of things that make it difficult uh, to get things changed. I, I find it very difficult to, to respond in general to a question about supermajority requirements because I think sometimes uh, they make a lot of sense and sometimes we have them and should keep them and other times I probably wouldn't be in favor of them. I, I, I just find it very gen- difficult to generalize about them. Uh, probably similarly with sunset. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to sunset uh, a lot of uh, laws but uh, don't assume that just because you sunset the law uh, it's necessarily a kind of a limitation on the effect of the law. I'll just give an example from my own field of expertise. Uh, The Voting Rights Act uh, was enacted in 1965 uh, to sunset in 1970. Uh, It was amended in 1970 to sunset in 1975. It was amended in 1975 to sunset in 1982. And it was uh, amended in 1982 to sunset in 2007. It actually was amended uh, uh, in 2006 and whatever the math is, 25 years from now. Uh, now, other than this year, or uh, each other time that it was amended, it was very significantly extended. This year, when it was amended, it was extended only in some very, pretty minor ways. But uh, and I don't I don't know a lot about how this works generally. But I think that uh, in this case, and probably in some other cases, sunset is a good idea because it does mean that the issue has to be reconsidered. It just doesn't stay with inertia. But it's not. It's like a lot of these things that they have a lot of pros and cons uh, that we can debate, and we do debate. But whatever those pros and cons are, they are not shortcuts, they are not gimmicks for limiting government. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's the one issue that I, I think there are a lot of differences among the four of us, but I think that's common ground uh, that we all think if you want to do that, there's no real shortcuts. You're just going to have to go out and convince the people that mm-hmm. that's what you should be doing. Another commenter yes.
1: on sunsets and supermajorities, okay. Uh, <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah, the political science literature, um, there is some support for supermajorities. Uh, I think most political scientists are somewhat skeptical of that uh, because the, the voting rules in Congress are not necessarily completely exogenous to the results. Sometimes they're what political scientists would call endogenous, uh, and that is that, that they become part of a bargaining process. And if you have a simple majority, then you can get things through more easily, it's true. But a supermajority doesn't mean that things won't get through. It means that more groups will have to be bought off right? Now, sometimes that's in the conference committee. Sometimes that's on the floor. Sometimes it's in committee. And that's the difficulty, is that when you have to buy off more groups to get your supermajority, you might end up, on the whole, with more government. And not just because LBJ gives another dam or another road to Alaska to get the Civil Rights Act through, but because things either get put in the statute or, as we now see... See, one of the phenomena that's now going on in the legislature, the federal legislature, is what we call omnibus bills, uh, a lot of substantive legislation that gets passed now is tacked on to appropriations bills and other things. And a lot of it with very little deliberation. And a lot of it is just raw interest group giveaways or unreflected turf grabbing or other things that we would object to. And that's a real difficulty. And the supermajority rules, uh, not only have we have more of those supermajority rules now, we have more of this omnibus legislation. I don't think there's a causal link. But certainly the supermajority rules and the sunsetting, which is a less important phenomenon, maybe, have, have not slowed down the ability of Congress to, to generate a lot more regulation, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
5: Yes, I, I agree with that. The, the, one of the big puzzles to a political scientist or a student of public choice theory is why all legislation doesn't pass unanimously, because every member of a legislature has the same vote. All right, so the value of your vote is the same, and if you're engaged in log rolling or horse trading, everybody can do the same thing. So everybody should be paid in some way, that is, some benefit to his constituents for the vote. And a really successful log roll is one in which everybody will be satisfied, because if there are unsatisfied people, a better deal can be made. So there are an awful lot of laws, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, for example, uh, one of the biggest expansions of federal power uh, in the 20th century, passed unanimously in both the House and the Senate because very broad deals had been struck. So supermajority requirements are no solution unless they are combined with something like single-subject limits, uh, which make it very more difficult to log roll across bills. Now, even in Illinois, which has a single-subject rule, a bill can't have more than one subject in it, the log roll goes across packages of bills. Each bill is a single subject, but the packages have more. And on one short comment with respect to uh, sunsets, I think the Voting Rights Act is a very good illustration uh, that laws that are initially enacted with sunsets on the idea that we have a short term problem to be cured, uh, and therefore our law can go out of force after the cure. Thankfully,
1: however, the Sunset did work in that case, a piece of legislation that many people would call unwise and unconstitutional, I certainly wouldn't want to express an opinion, but, but a great many people would say that, uh, did lapse without having to have the case go back to the Supreme Court to see if Scalia could get some more votes the next time because of the Sunset provision. So I became, if I had not been one before, a great fan of Sunset provisions when that Burden that I took for two to four years wound up taking fourteen to get off my back, and that's government at its norm. That you know, be that as it may, Richard, you had some comments. Just
4: really briefly, <clears throat> alongside and uh, giving force to the fundamental principle of popular sovereignty is, of course, the fundamental principle of political equality, and that I believe requires that the norm be majority rule. I think we have too many uh, supermajority requirements in our system already.
0: All right, back to
1: the left, no offense intended.
0: Well, I'm Brian Bishop and uh, you speak correctly, I'm from the uh, from Rhode Island where uh, where a democrat I think was just defeated in the in the Senate uh, by another democrat. And uh, in any event, uh, two more devices that I think could perhaps better than reinterpretation and overruling of Wickard uh, might uh, address the commerce power uh, so one that's been tried at the state and one that's been discussed frequently theoretically here at the Federalist society would be the first the codification of Pennsylvania coal. Uh, in In more clear constitutional terms or the, or the principle underlying it, and second would be uh, taking uh, uh, justice thomas 's invitation in American trucking rather than through a judicial role amending the Constitution with a legislative proto to address the delegation uh, problems that have arisen the separation of powers.
1: does that inspire any response? If not, then back to the right
0: um, i
4: uh, Chris I mean, your left, so
1: it comes out even.
4: Uh, Chris Weissmiller from Oklahoma City University. I, uh, I'm originally a native of Wisconsin, where we've seen the line item veto uh, work fairly well with some abuses, um, and we've seen in Oklahoma and Wisconsin a discussion of the taxpayer bill of rights, which originally came in um, from Colorado. Uh, I'm wondering what you've seen work at the state level that you think more states should adopt, as far as limiting spending. And is there anything that's worked at the state level that you think the federal government should implement?
1: Well, let's not direct anybody in particular, Bill. do we'll well, you, you start. my answer. The empirical
2: data is that in the last 35 years, the initiative is about the only thing I can name, where there, there are data that suggests that it has, um, uh, Frank says uh, very small, but it's statistically significant according to Matsusaka's uh, data, <coughs> it's reduced taxes, uh, it has reduced spending, uh, and maybe this is the most important thing, it has pushed government a little bit back toward the local level. And one uh, finding I forgot to mention was that it it altered the balance of government revenues away from taxes and in favor of user fees, however that cuts with you. Uh, so I would say that's the only thing I know of where there are respected uh, political economists who are finding any effect. That's not a huge effect, uh, but it is some effect. I'm uh, not on top of all the balance. A lot of the states have balanced budget requirements in their constitution, and I'm not sure that that would have an effect. This goes back to an earlier question, uh, is that one way you get around balanced budget requirements, one way that we got around Graham Rudman, for example, uh, is by cooking the books, and this is true of both parties, uh, whoever's president, whoever's in charge of the Congress, uh, they do tend uh, to uh, uh, readjust the figures by creative estimates. So it's, it's not just the judges who are creative. Uh, it's also the legislators and the executive who are creative. They can be just as creative uh, as Frank Easterbrook, but, of course, you know, some of them are subject to re-election. Not nearly so
1: wise, though. Maybe not. One sentence? As many um, as you want. No, as many—not as many as you want, but <laughs> one and more. One. I
3: recommend electing go- legislators and governor a governor uh, who support less spending, if that's your goal.
4: <laughs> no, fair
1: enough. Anyone else? All right. Questions.
2: Uh, Mike Francella, Florida native, working in D.C. Uh, Professor Eskridge mentioned in passing the hypothesis that uh, rent-seeking activities would gravitate towards the federal level. I guess the, uh, the flip side of that coin is the idea that is in circulation that if you can push uh, responsibilities and powers down to lower levels, whether you call it devolution or subsidiarity or, or federalism, uh, you'll have in general better results and in specific uh, less government. Uh, I guess the question would be, what are the prospects, uh, theoretical and practical, uh, for achieving less government by devolution or subsidiarity? Slim. <coughs> I adhere to that hypothesis. I think Paul Peterson is right, the Harvard political economist. His argument is in part, anyway, a Tebow argument, uh, the, the argument that the states and the localities in providing uh, basic police powers like education, roads, etc., are competing with one another and that uh, a state that can more efficiently provide good education, good roads, uh, good infrastructure, uh, but not at exorbitant tax rates, will attract, you know, the better taxpayers uh, and will, will grow. And there seem to be some legs for that. Um, are we going to be able to devolve more? Well, uh, we still ha- we have a lot of devolution. One of the things we should not fall into at this convention is to thinking about all of the growth in government is at the federal level and just this bloated pig. Uh, A lot of the growth really is still at the state and local level. Most of the government that we have today is still at the state and local level. Uh, And much of the uh, government we have at the federal level, we have to have at the federal level. The armed forces, uh, wars, uh, weapons of mass destruction uh we do not want to entrust san francisco with uh these matters. uh <laughs> they really must must be you're <laughs> laughing but it's true uh, dermato scammers in the Ninth right <laughs> circuit. uh he might scoff at me for that but we don't want san francisco in oregon not even oregon a square state uh, to be doing those uh, kinds of things. uh so <clears throat> uh i think it would be good uh one mechanism that we've not mentioned uh that that uh, there are two mechanisms that actually do support devolution. One is just sheer practicality, that a lot of the most criticized federal programs really do depend upon a lot of state cooperation, uh, welfare, Social Security, and so on and so forth. And most of the actual work is done at the state level, and a lot of the regulations actually at the state level. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, The other mechanism is political parties. So I subscribe to what my brother Lowenstein said, although I'll warn you, Those people out in California voted for Governor Schwarzenegger because he said he would solve their problem of bloated government. You know, we will cut government. We will beat it up. And the girly men will be out of office. Well, I I bet you that under Governor Schwarzenegger, government has continued to expand. Well, I will amend my recommendation. I recommend
3: supporting legislators and governors who support less spending and who are in the habit of uh, telling the truth. (laughs)
2: <laughs> oh, this oh. is a problem. Oh, we do not know about that. Well, uh, well the, other, the other possibility would be to reinvigorate uh, the party system. We've seen much of this in the last 10 or 15 years. I think that was the secret of uh, the huge victory that the Republicans had in 1994. The Democrats' victory this year was not nearly as impressive as the Republicans' victory in 1994. And I think part of that was the Republicans went in with a united party with a platform which was a platform of smaller government, and the voters responded very favorably to that. Now, maybe one reason why the Republicans were voted out of office in 2006, and maybe should have been earlier, is that they betrayed those promises. They gave us a government that had too much corruption, too much pork, uh, too much uh, (laughs) government, right? But, but, But this is a point. This is a point. Uh, and this is maybe Governor Schwarzenegger's problem, in addition to the very heavy Austrian accent. Uh, Governor, is that the problem is that this is very difficult to resist once you're in office. Okay? And maybe this is one reason why we need the Federalist Society now more than before, because now the Republicans might be open to learning a lesson. Now then if they get in again, uh, which there's every reason to believe that they will, maybe they will be pure. Maybe they'll have some of you all in office. Maybe Frank will become senator from Illinois. When uh, 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 Obama runs for president, Frank will be the senile senator from Illinois and bring some sense of uh, order to the Republican Party in the Senate. i just being wildly Frank speculative or? here. And
5: I'm sure Frank wants to respond to that they, speculation. They, the American people have more sense than that.
2: But not the it, voters in Illinois. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Where the market mechanisms work. No, no, look. Market mechanisms work in, in, in Illinois. It goes to the highest bidder. The vote goes to the highest bidder. Isn't that right? Well,
1: the Frank doesn't, Frank doesn't you know. have the resources to engage in that kind
5: of bidding war. In
1: <laughs> he, he's been a federal judge and a professor. He's not acquired great
5: wealth. Uh, anyone else it, on yeah, the panel? The, the, the observation that the United States has many state and local governments and that competition among them, thibault style competition, does tend to reduce government expenditures is unquestionably true. I I tried to end my talk on an upbeat note, observing that the governmental sector is smaller in the United States than in Europe and most other places in the nation, in, in the world, and a principal reason for that is because of the federal structure of the United States. Instead of trusting politicians, one should rely on the, the underlying engine that's that's produced by that federal structure, which is competition, competition in the economy, competition among units of government. Today, the United States is occupying via, via the world the kind of position that Virginia was occupying via, via the United States two centuries ago. So the competition one should look for now is not only competition within the federal system in the United States, but competition worldwide. In 2000, Congress repealed most of the limits on the trading in commodities and derivatives under the Commodities Futures Modernization Act of 2000, precisely because world competition had made it it unsustainable to have particularly intrusive U.S. regulation. Capital can move across borders. So it seems to me that if you have a political program that's implied by this, instead of trusting what candidates for office say, you know, how often can you be fooled? Uh, you, You want to favor all of those programs that keep competitive forces open, both within the United States and across international borders. When somebody says to you, we need to harmonize international regulation of, here, insert something, you should run screaming in the opposite direction.
1: No other comments on the panel? Oh, just what? to brief, One more.
4: Just, I th- I, coming back to the Bill and Dan's point, I think we do have to ask ourselves why politicians so regularly uh, fail to tell the truth, to use Dan's terms, or, or betray their promises, as Bill said. Uh, Does it have to do with the conditions in which they operate, uh, incentives and pressures and so forth? My proposition is that it has to do with the type of personality uh, of our current crop and perhaps going back some way of politicians, their self-identification. That's what I'm calling for in the name of democracy and limited government is a new kind of identity politics.
1: I have a confession. I don't remember which side I called on last. Which one of you claims to be next?
7: They're next. Richard. Richard. Thank you. Um, my name is Roman Bueller, and for 14 years I was uh, Senior Counsel to the Committee on House Administration, uh, so I suppose I should apologize uh, to this group. Apology um, well,
1: accepted. I, who's next? Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. <laughs> my,
7: my observation during those 14 years was that Uh, regardless of ideology, most politicians tend to vote most of the time for things that increase their own power. And I was struck by Professor Parker's observation uh, that one of the engines of the unlimited uh, growth of government was the repeal of the 17th Amendment. And, uh, you know, Madison's vision of the federal government was uh, the idea that at least one branch should be accountable to the states. Uh, And my question to the panel is do you think there would be any value, leaving aside whether it would be politically possible, would there be any value to creating a national assembly of state legislatures that would have the power uh, to uh, block acts of Congress that either imposed an unfunded mandate uh, or preempted a state law?
4: I I assume that would require a constitutional amendment, right? Right. Yes, but yeah, seven thousand yeah. state legislators yeah. have some power I'm in here. That I'm with Frank Easterbrook. Talk of constitutional amendments is fantasy at the moment at this sort of grand structural uh, "let's limit government" level, because the muscle of constitutional amendment, amendment of the U.S. Constitution, has been allowed to wither. Step number one, therefore, is to revive that muscle and to do it uh, to seize whatever opportunity is at hand uh, and begin to build it back up.
5: Anyone want to go to the merits of the proposal? Assume that yeah, it could like, be done. Like, like other uh, proposals, the devil is usually in the details. Uh, it, a Proposal defined as, say, an assembly that will pass on unfunded mandates and the like seems to me not very useful for the same reason balanced budget amendments are not very useful. Mandates can be defined in such a way that they're always funded. Given the 16th Amendment, Congress can raise as much as it wants in taxes and fund all mandates. Or, of course, with creative accounting, one can have it so that the funding always matches the mandate and so on. I I don't think, as a systemic matter, uh, that playing around with governmental structures in a way that is easy to defeat, either with using the taxing power uh, or with creative accounting – uh, is is apt to have any real effects?
1: Anyone over here?
3: Well, it's an intriguing idea. I, I worked for eight years in state government, and I've never worked in the federal government. But I did hire some people uh, who had extensive experience in the uh, federal government, and I was impressed by the ability of uh, federal service uh, to take people who were really nice and intelligent and talented people, and do something to their brains to corrupt their use of language and their ability to think in certain kinds of common sense ways. Uh, so the idea of—I um, mean, I—you know—I agree with Fran- what Judge Easterbrook just said. Uh, to s- assume that that is going to systemically uh, uh, limit government, I think, is probably uh, an unwise assumption. But it would—something like that would. Uh, Give the states a greater voice, and it, you know I, I think it's an interesting idea. If we set aside the political feasibility of it, uh, but I, you know, I, I would want to hear a lot of debate about it. I mean, I've never thought of the idea until just now. Uh, I also would like to say, uh, just in response to what uh, Richard Parker said a, a minute ago, uh, I don't, th- I don't agree that most politicians are in the practice, uh, by and large, of betraying their promises. I think Governor Schwarzenegger is.
2: Uh, Let me just add to that an observation about today's panel and the questions we've been getting. And that is, here's a paradox, that we see the problem as limited government, or, or government's not limited enough. To solve the problem, most of the proposals have involved creating new mechanisms of government, new bureaucracies, new lines to be drawn, possibly new powers for judges, uh, because the judges might end up adjudicating the lines that need to be drawn, and new boilerplating, you know, because, uh, although I, did, I think the gentleman's idea about the legislative assembly uh, is theoretically a very appealing idea, I could see this becoming an even gianter logrum mm. <laughs> than the ones that I've already described.
5: But Bill, just remember, I'm recommending competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It involves no government at all.
2: I understand, but I'm talking about this, this assembly. Uh, I like, but the, therefore I also endorse, I completely uh, follow Frank in this idea of, of international competition. And I think the idea of opening up trade, et cetera, is maybe, maybe the best that can be done to an intractable problem. And part of the advantage is it doesn't involve new bureaucracies, for the most part.
1: That would take one small issue with Frank. I think the very idea of making them use the taxing power rather than putting out the... the uh, unfunded uh-huh. mandates and therefore hiding the tax around the country might have a lot of appeal to it. It would not be the a way around it, it would be displaying that it's working if they were forced to actually use their taxing power and you'd have something to take back and shake to the voters when you go up against them. But you and I are out of that business, we don't have to go up against anybody. Millett.
4: Uh Ted Frank, AEI. Uh, returning to the initiative issue. Uh, while California does not allow initiatives to be repealed except by other initiatives, there is another scenario, which actually has happened, where the interest group sues the state over the initiative that has been passed, and then the state colludes with the interest group to agree to a federal consent decree striking down the initiative. Uh, And I'm wondering if the panelists have any thoughts on on structural reforms that might address that. Uh, Throwing out one possibility in, in the California recall case, uh, the Central District of California and the Ninth Circuit allowed uh, my client, who sponsored the recall, to intervene. Though it's not clear to me that he did that, they did so constitutionally. Well, I,
5: I can tell you that some years ago, uh, Mike McConnell, then on the faculty at Chicago, now on the Tenth Circuit, and I proposed a rule for litigation that the executive branch of government, which controls litigation, should not be allowed to achieve via consent decree in court anything that it lacked the power to achieve via regulation issued unilaterally as a matter of state governance because otherwise it's simply bypassing the electoral process and cutting the legislative branch out. That rule was achieved largely for prison litigation as part of the Prison Litigation Reform Act of 1996 and it might be very helpful to extend it generally to all consent decrees.
1: Anyone else want to comment
2: on that? Uh, Just one sentence. Another uh, way to approach that is simply publicity and the uh, free criticism, making it a big public issue, uh, and crucifying the governor or the attorney general or whoever's behind it in the next election.
3: When you use too many ands, you're violating the spirit of the one-sentence doctrine. <laughs> hey,
2: there was one oh. subject
7: and a of verbs.
2: For a Yale Law professor, that is a huge advance.
1: <laughs> Even before the legislation that Judge Easterbrook referred to, there was at least one judge, Terry Boyle, Terrence Boyle, in the Eastern District of North Carolina, who simply refused to accept one of the consent judgments that the governor or the attorney general were using to get around the legislatures not funding a new prison project. and He, in terms consistent with what the legislation eventually did, said, no, I'm not going to take over the role of your legislature. If you have a lawsuit, try it out. Don't come in here and ask the judge to order the solution to the problem. So, Frank, maybe we have a role to play in the areas outside prison mm-hmm. reform of dealing with the same
5: kind of uh, yeah. I, I straw can, suits. Yeah. I can tell you that the Seventh Circuit has adopted that approach largely as a matter of common law for other Mm -hmm. consent decrees within the jurisdiction of the Seventh Circuit, Uh, but I can also tell you the Ninth Circuit has not. (laughs) I think we're back to this side now.
7: Peter Gailey, Buffalo, New York. Uh,
5: This may be the last
1: one.
7: Judge Easterbrook mentions that he wondered why... Uh, There weren't more unanimous votes in legislatures. I refer him to the New York State legislature, where for long periods of time, every major piece of legislation was passed unanimously. But my question has to do with the initiative. Uh, There's an intermediary step between initiative or no initiative. And a number of states have these. They're called indirect initiatives. There are lots of interesting ideas here with regard to the Massachusetts, for example, has one, but it's indirect. And New Jersey is flirting with one now. And I wondered if the panelists had any thoughts upon or consensus on this
4: intermediary step between initiative or no initiative. What's happening in Massachusetts, uh, or what happened a week or so ago, uh, suggests to me the problems with this uh... as i'm sure some of you know uh... there was a movement to let the voters decide the same-sex marriage issue uh... but the legislature in the most cynical ways imaginable i.e adjourning voting to adjourn uh, managed to to frustrate uh... this and i think uh... that that's a real a real danger
3: well there are two uh... species of that uh... one is optional and one is mandatory uh... We had in our constitution for a long time the optional uh, indirect initiative uh, uh, and virtually without exception uh, no initiative proponents ever used it so we got rid of it. Uh, The mandatory I think is, um, I I think on this one I I would agree with Richard Parker, I mean if you don't want the initiative don't adopt it but uh, 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 if you say that the legislature can just block it, uh, I I think that... I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe you can make a case for it, but my first reaction to it is that it's uh, you, you, you know you, you're you're splitting the baby and and uh, you know go one way or the other, but the, you've got a compromise that doesn't seem very coherent.
1: Well, at the risk of being accused of also being cynical, I'm afraid it's time we adjourn. So I'm not going to call <laughs> anyone else. For My thanks to the panel and to an enlightened audience for a very lively session. Thank you very
2: much. Good job, Keith. Wonderful. Judge, thank you for being such an amusing as well as substantive speaker. Yeah, no, that was great. That was really great. Oh, Charles and moderating is a real
7: artist.